the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, what, what is it, Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Just want to start out saying thank you very much for your generosity yesterday with the Union Gospel Mission. Our efforts continue on our sister station, The Fish, and uh, we're approaching the goal that's been set for us. And so we're very grateful for your generous response once again to the Union Gospel Mission serving right here in our community. Well, today on the program, we're going to talk with Israel Wayne. He is the author of Education, Does God Have an Opinion? A Biblical Apologetic for Christian Education and Homeschooling. We're also going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He's Deputy Counsel for First Liberty. We're going to talk about a Pennsylvania student who was forced to remove all references to God in her graduation remarks. And we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a manager of election law reform initiatives and a senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions testimony yesterday, which, of course, we did not have the opportunity to talk about yesterday. So all of that coming up. Also, there's uh, news on the trial of the man uh, who's now been found guilty of the murder of Pastor Rich and Jordy Jones' daughter, Nicole Lobby. We'll tell you more about that uh, later in the program. Well, much of the news today was uh, uh, dominated by the fact that there was a gunman believed uh, to have been a supporter of Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, who sprayed a hail of bullets at a GOP baseball practice on Wednesday morning, critically wounding House Majority Whip Steve Scalise, who is now in critical, remains in critical condition and injuring four others before U.S. Capitol Police took down the rifle wielding uh, assailant. Scalise was, uh, as I mentioned, in critical condition as of this afternoon, according to MedStar Washington Hospital. He had surgery after being shot in the hip and was initially said to be stable, uh, but now critical. The shooter would have, um, uh, or I should say, who had a, a violent history, including arrests for battery, resisting arrest, and drunken driving, was identified as a 66-year-old James Hodgkinson of Illinois. Uh, President Trump said he uh, died from his injuries sustained when he was uh, shot by police. But that took place some moments after he uh, was on his way for uh, medical attention. Uh, The president uh, tweeted at the time, or rather uh, spoke, that I have just uh, been informed that the alleged shooter at the Republican baseball practice is someone who apparently volunteered on uh, or rather um, Bernie Sanders on my presidential campaign. I am sickened by this despicable act. Let me be as clear as I can be. Violence of any kind is unacceptable in our society. And I condemn this action in the strongest possible terms. Now, you might recall in 2011, it was Bernie Sanders who called out John McCain at the uh, shooting of Gabby Giffords. It was immediately said that the individual responsible was uh, motivated by Sarah Palin. And he called upon the presidential candidate to uh, renounce any kind of um, highly charged political rhetoric. And the question now is that since the shoe is on the other foot, whether or not that will be what follows uh, in this case. Majority Whip uh, Steve uh, Scalise uh, was the uh, individual most severely injured. Zach Barth, a congressional aide of 
uh, to Representative Roger Williams out of Texas and Tyson Food Director of Government Relations, Matt uh, Micah, were also injured in that incident. Micah was shot multiple times and was in critical condition, his family said in a statement. Special Agent uh, David Bailey and Crystal Greiner uh, were both wounded as well in the incident. Greiner was uh, shot in the foot or leg and Bailey who was not shot, sustained another unspecified injury, as did some other members of uh, the uh, baseball team, Republicans, who, in ducking for cover, found that they uh, injured themselves as well. Congressman Scalise is a friend and a very good friend, Trump said in his White House address. He is a patriot and a fighter. He will recover from this assault. And Steve, I want you to know that you have the prayers of not only an entire city behind you, but the entire nation and, frankly, the entire world. Representative Ron DeSantis out of Florida told Fox News that he uh, his uh, he left just before the shooting. And as he was walking to his car, a man asked him if it was Republicans or Democrats practicing about three minutes later at around 709 a.m. The shooting began. DeSantis said he later told the uh, Fox business that he believed the man who approached him was, in fact, the shooter. Senator Rand Paul described the chaotic scene, uh, saying that we were all sitting ducks without the Capitol Hill police. It would uh, have been a massacre, uh, Paul said, calling the scene a sort of a killing field. Well, Hodgkinson was shot by Capitol Police and Alexandria Police, apprehended and uh, taken to the hospital, according to officials. The incident occurred at Simpson Field in Alexandria, about 10 miles from Washington, D.C. The FBI was taking um, over the investigation because a federal official, Scalise, was assaulted in that attack. Now, the only reason there were Capitol Hill police uh, president is because Scalise is a majority whip. That means he's responsible for uh, the, the term whip is used for uh, gathering up support within his own party. And that party is in the majority at this point. So he's responsible for dealing with every single member of the House on the Republican side and encouraging them to move in one direction or another, consistent with what the leadership has designated as a priority. Uh, because he is in leadership, he has a detail that follows him, whereas other members do not. If he had not been present, if the Capitol Hill uh, police had not been president, present, rather, this would have been a killing field because there was no um, no defense uh, there at all. Calls started coming in almost immediately when shots were heard and, and neighbors nearby uh, not only heard the shots, but some had to literally dodge them as well. So there would have been law enforcement on the scene, but that would have taken uh, some time. Uh, so this was uh, very much a, a blessing to have Scalise there, who unfortunately was one of the victims. Meanwhile, Donald Trump Jr. jumped into uh, the charge discussions about the shooting at the congressional baseball practice immediately after the event, retweeting a comment. The tweet he forwarded was by commentator Harlan Hill, who, who wrote events like today are exactly why we uh, took issue with New York elites glorifying the assassination of our president, Hill wrote. Um, he went on to uh, quote others uh, in pointing out that there has been some not only highly charged rhetoric, but uh, some statements that encourage violence. Uh, good people gunned down because of their political affiliation, Todd Starnes wrote. Make no sense, uh, make no mistake, rather, the man who pulled the trigger bears the responsibility for the bloodshed. But we would be foolish if we did not address the festering anti-Trump cancer that has infected the left. What about the D-list comedian who beheaded the president or the tax-funded production called Killing Republicans or the Shakespearean drama where Caesar was depicted as President Trump and, of course, is beheaded? What about the high school teacher who made a bet on whether the 
the president would be assassinated or the one who pretended to execute the president inside her classroom? Or how about the professor who said Republicans must be executed and the president must hang? Or uh, the other professor who said House Republicans should be lined up and shot as they were earlier today. On Wednesday, those professors nearly got their wish when a baseball field came perilously close to becoming a killing field. I would encourage you to read a column written by David French for National Review, When Speech Inspires Violence, Protect Liberty While Restoring Virtue. That is the challenge of a free society. We protect free speech because it's powerful, but with power comes responsibility, and we have to somehow balance them both. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today is Flag Day. Well, what is it and why do we celebrate it? Well, Flag Day honors um, a June 14th, 1777 resolution from the Second Continental Congress, which called for an official United States flag just calling for one to be produced. The resolution called for the flag to be 13 stripes, alternate uh, red and white, uh, that the union be 13 stars, uh, white with a blue field, representing a new constellation. Well, the number of figures in the 1800s led the the, uh, charge to recognize the importance of the flag. Hartford, Connecticut resident George Morris in 1861 got his town to undertake a patriotic celebration on behalf of the union, according to a Philly.com report, which said the idea failed to become popular. Well, Flag Day was unofficially observed 16 years later. That was in 1877. The Department of Defense said in a blog post, the uh, flag waved nationwide from public buildings for the occasion. A report from 2011 says one of the more famous figures was Wisconsin teacher Bernard Sigrand. In 1885, he put a flag in an inkwell and uh, tasked his students to write essays about the flag. The National Flag Day Foundation says uh, Sigrand would spend decades championing the flag and even became the editor-in-chief of the American Standard, a magazine devoted to American emblems, according to the foundation. William Kerr established the American Flag Day Foundation in western Pennsylvania in 1888. Um, Kerr reportedly met nine presidents, contacted many politicians. Over 67 years he spent seeking an official day for the flag. He was a very strong personality, a force of will, but it took a while according to his grandfather, his grandson, rather, Thomas Kerr. Uh, he had no secretary. He did it all himself. Uh, there were also um, other efforts. In 1889, George Balch, a New York City principal, made his school uh, have events in obser- uh, observance. Rather, In 1893, colonial dames of Pennsylvania, Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, fought for Philadelphia's public buildings to have flags, according to uh, a Philly report as well. So this was a longstanding drudge uh, drudgery of uh, trying to get the recognition for the flag itself. And of course, now we have Flag Day. Well, May the 30th in 1916, uh, there was a proclamation for Flag Day issued. And again, this is 19 or 16, which is some years after June 14th, 1777. Well, it said, uh, I therefore suggest and request that throughout the nation and if possible in every community, the 14th day of June be observed as Flag Day with special patriotic exercises. That was written by President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson had been stirred by a conversation with Kerr, the man who for many, many years, 67 to be precise, had attempted to have a day designated to celebrate the flag. President Harry Truman later signed Flag Day's permanent observation into law in 1949, according 
uh, to uh, sources. Well, uh, is Flag Day a federal holiday? Well, obviously not. You're working, most likely. However, Flag Day is a state holiday in New York and Pennsylvania. Well, some of the traditions, some places in the United States hold Flag Day parades. Presidents have also issued proclamations for Flag Week. Former President Obama's 2016 proclamation called on both federal government buildings and all Americans to display the flag. I don't know if under this administration there have been any such proclamations. Well, few American institutions predate the founding of our country, yet on, well, today, uh, we celebrate the birthday of one of them, and that is the U.S. Army, tracing its birth back to, well, June 14th, 1775. The Army originates from an act passed by the Continental Congress authorizing 10 companies of expert riflemen to join state militias gathered outside Boston. President George Washington's appointment as the Army's commander-in-chief came the following day. Well, the story of the Army's 242 years is the story of our nation, punctuated by military operations like the Battle of New Orleans and the War of 1812, the surrender of the Confederate Army at Appomattox, the successful Battle of St. Mihiel in uh, World War I, the D-Day invasion, the bloody Battle of Ladang Valley in Vietnam, the tough fights in Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan, and the history being written today by the brave American soldiers deployed in 140 countries around the world. Thomas Spohr, writing for the Daily Signal, points out, but the Army story is not only about battles, it also encompasses innumerable positive advancements and successes for our country. For example, the exploration of the American West by Army Captain Meriwether Lewis and 2nd Lieutenant William Clark, or the research of Dr. Walter Reed, who pioneered the solution to yellow fever. Yes, that's linked to the U.S. Army. It also included the um, abolishment of racial discrimination in the armed forces by President Harry Truman in 1948, the Army's enforcement of desegregation at the University of Alabama in 1963, and the Army relief operation mounted in Liberia in 2014 to help the country deal with the ravages of the Ebola virus. For 242 years, the Army has been there when it was needed. Yes, the equipment and the uniforms have changed over the years, but some things will never change, like the Army's spirit, pride, and passion. Well, the Army's can-do spirit was on full display in 2011 as the uh, withdrew millions of pieces of equipment from Iraq against a tight December 31st deadline. Whether or not it should have happened is a debate for another day. As the Deputy Commanding General for Support for U.S. Forces in Iraq at the time, the media constantly asked if it is, is it possible to get all this equipment and supplies out by the deadline? The answer was inevitably, when the chips are down, never bet against the U.S. Army. And thanks to the indomitable truck driver, forklift operator, and thousands of extraordinary soldiers, the Army was out of Iraq ahead of schedule with all its equipment. The pride of the Army is evident in soldiers newly graduated from basic combat training, standing tall in their Army blue uniforms, confident in their training, their drill sergeants, and their new profession. Watching self-assured soldiers and their proud parents embrace after a basic combat training graduation never fails to bring a lump in the throat of viewers. An abiding passion underlies everything the Army does. One of the favorite sayings of General Crichton Abram, former Army Chief of Staff and World War II hero, was this, Soldiering is an affair of the heart. And of course, he was right. You can't lead men and women to do things they would normally never consider using cold, dry management. You have to be completely committed to your soldiers and your mission. Well, today the Army faces the challenge of inconsistent and inadequate levels of funding, a declining percentage of American public that's able and willing to serve. It's certain, however, that with the support of Congress, the American public, America's proud tradition, the Army will continue to be there when it's needed for the next 242 years and beyond. 
Happy Birthday Army. Now, my prayer is that the Lord Jesus would come back before then, and we would study and prepare for war no more. But again, that's a a subject for another day, today being the 242nd birthday of the U.S. Army. Uh, Some breaking news. We learned just a short while ago that the special counsel that is investigating whether or not there was collusion with the Russians has now been expanded, which is what special um, commissions do, what uh, special counsels do. You might recall that uh, in the Clinton administration, it started out as a whitewater investigation and it ended up with a sex scandal involving the president of the United States. So we have the beginning of uh, the same mission creep here with the new special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016, ele- uh, 2016 election. Rather, That has now officially expanded to include an examination of whether the president attempted to obstruct justice, according to a new report from the Washington Post. And if the Washington Post is to be believed, and sometimes it can be, uh, this is a, an expansion that many anticipated. And one of the reasons uh, there's such resistance with a special counsel is because they're they're not narrowly defined. They are uh, wide open. It was also announced earlier today that the uh, the Democrats plan on on bringing or keeping the Russian story alive right up until the election. So whether or not th- there's a story there, if there's enough there there, this is going to be the subject about which the nation is going to focus its attention for the next uh, many many months. Again, Special Counsel Robert Mueller expanding his investigation into. Um, the president and whether or not he is guilty of obstruction of justice with regard to the firing of the FBI director in his uh, role uh, of investigating Russia's interference in the 2016 election. And it goes on. Uh, By the way, this could have been avoided by the president. He um, is responsible certainly for putting himself in a position where a special counsel was ultimately called. That could have been avoided. Um, uh, But uh, of course, uh, that uh, that may have prevented as well the need for special counsel. So there's a there's a lot that the president himself has to bear in terms of responsibility for this particular pass. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Up next, we're going to talk with Israel Wayne. His book is titled Education. Does God have an opinion? A biblical apologetic for Christian education and homeschooling. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, since the beginning of the 20th century, the vast majority of Christians have embraced the idea that it is a proper role and function of the civil government to control and guide the education of children. Most Christians believe God doesn't care one way or the other how our children are schooled or what methods are employed. Well, the book we're going to be reviewing will use scripture to prove otherwise. What you read in this book will radically change your assumptions and preconceived ideas. Thus writes my next guest, Israel Wayne, in his book, Education, Does God Have an Opinion? A Biblical Apologetic for Christian Education and Homeschooling. Israel Wayne is a best-selling author and conference speaker who passionately defends the Christian faith and helps families develop a biblical worldview. In addition to his newest book, Education, Does God Have an Opinion? He offers um, uh, pitch in a fit full-time parenting a guide to family-based discipleship questions god asks questions jesus asks and homeschooling from a biblical worldview he is a popular conference speaker and a frequent guest on national radio and television programs has been featured in time magazine world magazine and the wall street journal he serves as the director of family renewal llc and is the site editor for christianworldview.net thank you so much for joining us today it's wonderful. Great to be on your show. 
Now, education is a subject that all of us at one point or another have to give some thought to. We are required in this country to provide uh, education for youngsters. But you argue that civil education may, in fact, not be uh, certainly what it what it was in the beginning and may not be what God has in mind when it when uh, uh, it comes to the subject of education. What motivates you to look at what most kids are exposed to and what you believe the scriptures teach about education and the parents? responsibility uh, regarding education? Well, there are a lot of studies from Pew Research and Barna Research, Beamer Group, AMI Institute, and many others that reveal the fact that many Christian young people, in fact, the majority of Christian young people being raised in church today, uh, number one, do not have a biblical worldview. Uh, In fact, the latest studies that we've seen from the Barna Research Group shows that only 4% of millennials in the United States have a biblical worldview, uh, but then also the vast majority of young people raised in Christian churches are leaving the church and saying, we're never coming back. Uh, on average, about two-thirds. Uh, depending on the denomination, it can be anywhere from about 60 to 90, almost 90 percent leaving the uh, Christian church and saying, we're out of here. We don't. Are you still with us? I'm not hearing my guests. I'm going to put him on hold. Clark, could you check and see... What may have happened? Again, we're talking with Israel Wayne. He is a best-selling author and conference speaker. His book uh, today is Education, Does God Have an Opinion? A Biblical Apologetic for Christian Education and Homeschooling. We seem to have some technical difficulty, uh, which Clark is looking into uh, at this time. Later in the program, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He's the deputy counsel for First Liberty. We're going to talk about a Pennsylvania student who was invited to speak to her graduating class, but was later forced to remove all references to God in her graduation remarks. Uh, she was required to submit them, and they said it was against the law for her to make reference uh, to her faith uh, in that uh, that context. Well, First Liberty uh, begs to differ, and we'll talk more about this uh, this situation, which is uh, been repeated across the country more often than we care to uh, care to consider. We're also going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's the manager in election law reform initiatives and senior legal fellow with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to uh, talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions' testimony yesterday before a Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, that depending on where you stand, either went extremely well or didn't go well at all or made little difference to the case that's, uh, that is being made against the Trump administration. So we'll talk with, uh, with Hans von Spakovsky later in the, uh, in the five o'clock hour. I think we have our guest back. Again, we're talking with Israel Wayne. He's a best-selling author. We're talking today about his book, Education, Does God Have an Opinion? A Biblical Apologetic for Christian Education and Homeschooling. You were in the middle of, uh, of uh, talking about um, education in general and why parents uh, who have to confront the issue of education um, are seeing more and more young people uh, abandon their their faith, or the fact that young people have uh, do not have a biblical worldview? Yes, and so you know, I think a lot of it has to do with this ten thousand eight hundred plus seat hours of instruction that they're getting in the government school system that a lot of Christians think is religiously neutral, but I would contend is uh, for the most part uh, opposed to and antagonistic to the essentials of their Christian faith and of a biblical worldview. And so when you think about the future of Christianity in America, it really is only as successful as the ability of this generation of Christians to pass the faith on to their own children, and it's simply not happening. And so I think we need to take a completely new 
an honest look at the issue of how we're educating our children because I think it's one of the most significant uh, pieces to the puzzle. Now, the subtitle of your book is Does God Have an Opinion? And maybe we can begin there. Does God have an opinion uh, with regard to how children are educated? Well, you know, there are a lot of passages of Scripture that uh, I could point to, and I do in the book, dozens and dozens of passages of Scripture that deal with this issue of education. But to simplify it, Uh, Let me just put it this way. Every passage of Scripture in the Bible that talks about instruction and teaching and education of children is directed to parents. There are only two exceptions to that. Uh, In two places, the Scripture says, teach your sons and your son's sons. So the only other people group besides parents who ever commanded by God to teach and instruct children are grandparents in a supplementary role. But there's not a single verse in the Bible where God ever commands or instructs the civil government to be involved in teaching and training and educating children. In fact, in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, we're given a description of what civil government, which is established by God, is supposed to do. It says they're supposed to bear the sword to punish the evildoer. So the role of the civil government is quite narrow, as it's biblically defined uh, by God who created it. And then the Church, interestingly enough, is never commanded anywhere in the New Testament, nor do we have an example of the Church directly teaching children. And so it's, it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, we have built almost everything that we think we know about education on something other than the Bible. So when we think about education, all these things come to our mind of school buildings and classrooms and school desks and recess and playgrounds and sports teams and band and prom, and we don't find any of that in Scripture whatsoever. We find uh, parents being commanded by God to teach and instruct their children. And so everything we think we know about education, we've received from some outside source besides the Bible. And so I would say that much of what we think as Christians education is supposed to look like has been culturally informed by our own experience, our own upbringing, uh, as opposed to being informed by Scripture. And as a Christian who believes in the authority of Scripture, my view is we should look and see what does God have to say about this. Now, early on when um, public education was being established, it was centered around biblical instruction. Would you argue that uh, civil education as it's structured today is, is wrong, but the way education was designed originally in this country, that that too was wrong, that it's always wrong for parents to enlist surrogates to come alongside them in educating their children? Well, when you look at the uh, the origin of compulsory attendance laws in the United States that were first put into place in 1840 by Horace Mann, uh, who was from Massachusetts. And Horace Mann was not a Christian. He was a Unitarian. He was uh, a God-hater, and he hated the concept of the doctrine of original sin. He hated the concept that the Bible says people were born as sinners and that they needed to be a, they needed a Savior. He believed that people were born innately good, and if just left to themselves, they could basically create a utopian society where they would figure out how to govern themselves and how to rule themselves based on uh, humanistic um, approaches to things that were absent from the Bible, absent from the notion of God. And so he wanted to create a school system that would essentially, eventually be free from any kind of religious instruction whatsoever. And so he created these compulsory attendance laws, and what he called non-sectarian public schools. 
And he did so very expressly for the purpose of eventually eradicating Christianity from American civilization. So when you go back and you study the history of government education, which most people have never done, uh, the, you'll find that from 1840 onward, uh, with the development of compulsory attendance schools and tax-funded schools that were uh, for, where children were forced to go there by compulsion, and then that they were funded by uh, taxes, that those schools were actually not Christian in their origin. Originally, they had Bible reading with no commentary, and you were allowed to have generic prayers, like from the Common Book of Prayers, uh, but there was not supposed to be specific religious instruction given to the students. And it's interesting that since 1925, every major Supreme Court case that's ever had to do with uh, Christianity uh, and schools in America, Christians have lost since 1925. And uh, even the History Channel, in a documentary they did with Mike Wallace, said that that was by design, and that uh, the purpose was that Christianity should be removed completely from uh, public schools and eventually from American civilization. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. We're talking about the book Education, Does God Have an Opinion? It's a biblical apologetic for Christian education and homeschooling. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. We're talking with Israel Wayne. He's the author of Education, Does God Have an Opinion? A Biblical Apologetic for Christian Education and Homeschooling. Now, what makes Christian education Christian? I think one of the things that makes Christian education Christian is that it acknowledges the source of all the information that we are studying. So, for example, when you're studying mathematics uh, or science, physics, uh, music theory, whatever the topic may be, you really only have two competing narratives that are being presented. The one is that all of those intricate and highly detailed uh, academic studies Uh, are originated from a Big Bang, a cosmic accident that happened 14 billion years ago when all of the matter and energy in the universe was compressed into a little dot the size of a period on a page, and it exploded. And we got these highly intricate systems like the DNA helix, the uh, laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity, the laws of mathematics, the laws of logic. Uh, Again, all these things came about from an explosion that happened uh, for no reason, and then just time plus matter plus chance. That's one narrative, and that really is the meta-narrative, the overstory of government education that gets pounded into your child's brain for 10,800 hours between kindergarten and 12th grade. Or you have another narrative, which is what Colossians 1 says, that it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that God made everything, the visible things, that's the physical world, and the invisible things, that's the metaphysical world, that everything was made through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us nothing was made that was not made through the Word. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So a Christian education would be one that acknowledges God in all of our ways, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, and also one that begins with faith, because Hebrews 6 tells us without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him has to acknowledge that, number one, He exists, and number two, that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So As we study out the laws of the universe, we're basically thinking God's thoughts after him. As uh, Blaise Pascal said, we're learning how to become, um, how to study the nature and and character of God as he's revealed it through general revelation. So Christian education acknowledges the Lord Jesus Christ as being the author of everything that is, as opposed to random 
chance processes. Now, obviously having a biblical worldview is the, the core principle of Christian education. What about how that education is administered? Um, there are a number of options. There's homeschooling, there's Christian school, there's a cooperative uh, with a, a collection of, of families coming together. What does the Bible tell us about uh, about that in terms of how education is administered? Right. Well, the Bible doesn't specifically forbid, and you asked this earlier, doesn't specifically forbid uh, parents bringing other people along to help them in the process. And I think that's really what the Church, what the body of Christ is supposed to be for. We, we help bear one another's burdens. But there's a line between delegation of authority and abdication. Delegation is where, mm-hmm. you know, let's just say for, uh, that, that I say, hey, uh, my wife and I are going to go out for an hour. Uh, would you watch our child for an hour so we can go out and, and have a conversation over lunch and really need to talk about some things? I'd be delegating responsibility to you. Nothing wrong with that. But what if I flipped that and said, you know what, you did such a great job watching our child for an hour. Uh, why don't you watch our child for the whole year, and I'll come back, and we'll, we'll visit them for an hour next year. That would be abdication. And so somewhere in that line, there is uh, the responsibility that parents are supposed to be in charge, and they're supposed to be guiding and directing the education of their children. So what God allows is he allows any education that's, number one, based in the fear of the Lord, number two, um, that is not being paid for uh, by people who don't want to pay for the child's education, where money's being taken by force from someone to pay for your child's education. Second uh, Corinthians 9, Paul says that no one should be give, giving to charity under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. So the education should be given by those who want to give uh, out of their own heart, and it should be administered uh, by those who share the same faith. Because we're also told in Corinthians we can't partner uh, together with unbelievers in, in uh, you know, what, what uh, yoking or partnership can we have if we don't agree? Uh, and, and I think that applies certainly to marriage, but it also applies to something as substantive as the raising of our children. We have to be sharing like faith. We're partnering together uh, in the education of our children for, for that kind of time. So given the fact that we live in a culture where compulsory education is required, we do have some options that parents have available to them. What do you suggest are the best models for uh, for passing along uh, a biblical worldview to a generation of children put in char- in the charge of their parents. Right. Well, obviously, the parents are supposed to be as involved as they possibly can be. Um, and the reason is because Jesus said that when a student is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. So education is not just a process of downloading information, facts, and data, but it's actually the passing on of beliefs and values and character and that's something that parents need to be very involved mm-hmm. in. They can't just expect someone else to do their job for them. They need to be as involved as they possibly can, uh, but then they also need to be very, very careful about who they delegate that uh, supplementary help and resource to. And so, uh, again, I think those people should be sharing their faith and that the education should definitely be uh, based in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the fear of the Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is the one who made uh, everything, and it all reflects his character and his glory. What do you say to parents who say they don't have the time or the skill to homeschool, they don't have the finances for private school? Yeah, um, again, these are difficult questions. Yeah. I wish that the Church would uh, come along and, and be more supportive of helping parents in difficult situations to provide exclusively Christian-based education for their children. Um, I, I think the problem that we have, though, 
is that 80 to 90 percent of all evangelical Christians have just decided it's perfectly acceptable to let the government raise their children. So they don't even think about church-based solutions because in their mind, uh, there's no problem with just letting the government take care of that. I don't think that we'll get to the place where we actually uh, develop those solutions adequately until we recognize um, the fallacy of turning education, which is discipleship, over to people that don't share our faith and that don't have our worldview. But, but in, in essence, to go back to your question, homeschooling itself doesn't actually cost that much. Mm-hmm. Most homeschooling parents are doing it for just a few hundred dollars per year per child, and there's a lot of options through homeschool co-ops. There's a lot of resources available now through online education. Uh, there are many more uh, options than when I was being homeschooled by a single-parent mother in the 1980s. Um, my mother had to make a lot of sacrifices to homeschool six children as a single-parent mom back in those days, and my mom didn't even finish ninth grade. So, you know, I, I understand that challenge uh, for a parent in that situation. But if, if you really want to give your children an exclusively Christian education, uh, I believe God will provide a way if you pray about it and, and seek out some uh, some resources like uh, hslda.org. They have lots of great articles and connections to state homeschool organizations. And even Christian schools, a lot of Christian schools uh, offer scholarships and financial aid for um, people who are not able to afford it. So there, there are options out there. The biggest deal is you have to want that. It has to be something that's of value to you. I think if it is, I, I think God will provide a way for you to give your child an exclusively Christian education. Yeah, it may require some sacrifices, whether that's financial or time. Um, you have to be prepared. If it's a priority, then that, that sacrifice is something I suppose is a bit more bearable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact is uh, anything that is of value um, is going to require some sacrifice. And in my mind, I can't think of anything that is a higher priority than me being able to give the best of myself to my children and to make sure that they have an education that's not just academically superior, which um, homeschooling definitely is. All the studies point to the superiority of homeschooling from an academic standpoint. But I think morally and spiritually, um, there, there really is no contest. And so from my perspective, I can't think of any excuse that I would be able to give to my children and say, well, I was too busy, or I just didn't feel like I had enough patience, or, you know, I just didn't really want to be around you, or, you know, some of the things that many Christian parents say, to say, it just wasn't a priority to me, and I didn't think you were worth me investing in you. Well, I wouldn't want to have to live with that myself as a Christian parent, uh, you know, telling my child that I, I didn't sacrifice to make sure that you had the best that I could possibly give you. Mm. Once again, the book is titled Education. Does God have an opinion? It's a biblical apologetic for Christian education and homeschooling. Israel Wayne, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. God bless. Uh, the book, by the way, is uh, published by Master Books. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In just a few moments, we're going to talk with uh, Deputy Counsel Jeremy Dice with First Liberty. And we'll also talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a manager in election law reform initiatives and senior legal fellow with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions' testimony before the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee yesterday. Um, a high school, um, this, uh, on Tuesday, attorneys with First Liberty Institute sent a letter to Beaver Area School District, 
um, officials there explaining that forcing a student to alter her personal graduation remarks they had asked her to make uh, to remove any religious viewpoint violates the United States Constitution. Well, that's certainly not what Mariah Bridges was told by the uh, Beaver High School um, uh, uh, um Leadership. She was the senior class president and was asked to uh, offer some closing uh, remarks to the commencement, commencement rather, on the 2nd of June. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jeremy Dice. He's deputy counsel for First Liberty. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, this is a story that's becoming um, too familiar, uh, but Mariah Bridges apparently was the Beaver High School senior class president. She was asked to give some closing, uh, some remarks to the closing exercises of the commencement earlier this month, um, and she was also told she needed to submit her comments uh, to the school district. Tell us what happened. Yeah, and, and let me make sure I'm clear on the facts here. Uh, Mariah was one of the students there, and the, the student class president asked her and another ah. young lady to provide opening and closing remarks, and uh, she, she agreed to do so and uh, provided those remarks at some point to the school district. They didn't ask for them, but they, she provided them uh, that way. And I uh, got a word back from the superintendent that said, basically, look, we, we welcome your words of inspiration and hope to your classmates, just so long as they're secular and not religious in nature. And so uh, Mariah was forced to, to redo her, her remarks entirely um, and did not get to reference her, her Christian identity and beliefs as she did so. And it is a real real disappointment to her to be able to go on her, uh, you know, the, 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 the capstone of her high school career, graduation day, and not be able to speak according to her, her true Christian identity. Now, my understanding was she wanted to thank her parents. She wanted to thank God for bringing her to this pass, and she wanted to include a prayer. Was this a proselytizing speech? Was it inappropriate by any general standard? Was there a reason that you could uh, point to that perhaps her speech needed to be altered? No, no. What, what she had done is to organize her best wishes for her classmates in the form of uh, something like a prayer, uh, but it was her speech. Uh, look, mm-hmm. in, in the Department of Education, the United States Department of Education has been very, very clear on this point, and it, and it actually has guidance that provides to all public schools across the country, and I, I presume including the Beaver Area School District. Uh, and what they say is that when a, so long as a student is chosen through genuinely neutral criteria, and in this case Mariah was, uh, then she retains, the student retains uh, primary edit authorship over those remarks, which uh, Mariah did, uh, then the school district may not edit out religious content of those speeches. That The reason for that is very simple. When the student has that primary control over those remarks, it then becomes private speech, fully subject to the, the protections of the First Amendment. So for the school district to say, we welcome your secular and, and sanitized remarks that are of inspiration uh, of some sort, so long as they're not religious, uh, that is expressing the state's viewpoint that needs to be conveyed, rather than allowing the private speech of the student to be able to convey a religious viewpoint. That's what we call religious viewpoint discrimination. It's illegal and it's wrong. Now, you uh, sent a letter to the Beaver, Beaver Area School District uh, saying just that. Have you heard back from them, and what uh, do you want to happen as a consequence? Well, look, let me ask the, answer the first last question first. It, we're just simply asking the school district to sit down with us, let us go through the law, uh, and, and explain what the law is and come up with a way, maybe a policy that uh, helps protect the religious expression of students into the future. I think it's a pretty reasonable request. Uh, but to answer your first question, uh, the only response that we received from the school district was a, a rather lengthy statement released to the press that basically uh, uh, said that they had every right to do what they did. Uh, and, and furthermore, it just simply ignored the, the guidance by the United States Department of Education. So 
either the superintendent there has not read it or she's read it and just simply rejected it. But maybe she hasn't read it. And so once the superintendent reads those guidelines that the United States Department of Education puts out every single year to public schools across the country, uh, I'm hopeful that she'll be uh, quick to, to say, yeah, this was a mistake and let's figure out how to do better in the future. If uh, the superintendent fails to do that, what happens next? Look, I, I don't think it has to do anything after that. I think it's very simple to be able to protect the religious expression of students by by creating a, a very simple policy that allows uh, the school district to recognize the uh, the civil rights of every student there. Remember, the Supreme Court has been very clear on this, too. The students do not shed their constitutional rights when they walk through the schoolhouse gates, and that continues all the way through the graduation ceremony. Now, one would assume that a highly trained superintendent of education would know that, would be familiar with the, the guidelines and the law, with what the Supreme Court allows and what it doesn't allow, and yet they intimidated a, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old, and she uh, was forced to rewrite her speech. Is there a way to prevent this from happening moving forward because they have accomplished the, uh, the goal? Uh, Mariah did not have the opportunity to share her remarks with her classmates, and my guess is they'll continue to do so unless they are somehow pressured to do otherwise. The best way to resolve this kind of thing, both in Beaver as well as across the country, is to make sure that people are going to firstliberty.org and downloading the Know Your Rights Toolkit for students on our website. That way students, moms and dads, teachers, superintendents, they will know what the law actually is and be fully prepared to be able to exercise those rights without any kind of disagreement or, or uh, you know, someone missing out on a great day and their last day of school. From your perspective and your experience, is this likely a rampant secularism in the school, or is there fear that if a prayer is permitted, and this is not really related to whether or not they should or should not do a thing, but uh, is it a, a subtle intimidation that they don't want to face off with any opposition that might arise as a consequence of allowing a student to do what the law clearly permits them to do? Well, I think there has been a loud cry by some to uh, to do this so-called separation of church and state so loudly and so often that uh, some teachers and administrators are scared to death mm-hmm. that they might get sued by the by the left if they permit anything resembling religion to pop up in public. It's, it's almost like school officials have this allergy to religion, and they need to sort of extricate it or, or you know, put it down or water it down so that uh, they don't uh, they don't catch the sneezes from it, uh, but that's not needed here. The founding fathers put into place a great system, a system that allows students and individuals, citizens of this country, to be able to fully exercise their First Amendment freedoms, including their religious freedoms, when they're on the school grounds, and that continues when they walk across the graduation stage. Well, Mariah Bridges certainly learned an important lesson, and uh, I know that she is quoted as saying that I hope the school district will realize their mistake and make sure future students never have to go through this again. Again, she's concerned about those who will follow her uh, being able to exercise their First Amendment freedom in the school at these kinds of events, should they uh, decide that in expressing themselves, they want to make reference to their religious faith. Yeah, Mariah is a, is a great young lady and has a real concern for those that follow after her to be able to to not be punished by the school district there for engaging in that religious expression. Look, if, if the school district is quick to clamp down on Mariah's expression at the graduation ceremony, I wonder what else might be out there, too. Uh, students are also entitled to be able to talk about their faith in class assignments, in classroom discussions, through the hallways, and that sort of thing. 
Uh, if this is the attitude by the superintendent when it comes to graduation, uh, one begins to wonder what else might be at stake within that school district. Mm. Now, First Liberty Institute is the largest legal organization in the nation dedicated to defending religious freedom for all Americans. And if listeners find themselves in a situation similar or uh, at least touching on religious uh, liberty, uh, what's the best way for them to to connect with you to uh, discuss um, what what moves might be uh, necessary? Yeah, no, do it. Uh, do what Mariah did. She went to our website at firstliberty.org and filled out a, a, a request for some assistance. We gave her a quick call and, and were able to help her out on this situation. So folks go to firstliberty.org can get in touch with us there, but also learn a whole lot about your religious liberty rights. Thank you so much for talking with us. I always appreciate your input. Thank you. Always glad to do it. Again, Jeremy Dice is a deputy counsel with First Liberty. Up next, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's uh, with the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions' testimony yesterday before a Senate Intelligence Committee. How did he do? Was uh, anything uh, determined that was not known ahead of time? We do know that the uh, special counsel has announced earlier today that they intend to broaden their investigation, which is what general counsels tend to do. Did uh, the session inquisition, if you will, have much to do with it? We'll get into all of that in our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Writing for Fox News, my next guest writes that as disappointed as Democrats were by James Comey's testimony last week, they were probably even more disappointed Tuesday by their inability to get anything damaging on President Trump from Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Um, Sessions had to uh, put up with sometimes insulting questions about his actions as a senator when he was part of the Trump campaign or his behavior as an attorney general of the United States. Yet, despite their most determined efforts, the inquis- uh, the inquisitors rather didn't leave a mark on their former colleague. We'll hear to talk about those that hearing yesterday is Hans von Spakovsky, legal fellow, senior legal fellow with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thanks for having me. First of all, let me give you an opportunity to score the hearings. Was it worth having? Was there anything um, damaging to either Sessions, the president, uh, or useful to the uh, to the Democrats in this uh, inquisition, as you put it? No, I don't think so. In fact, I think they they had the claim that they've been trying to make uh, greatly damaged. Uh, I mean, to give you an example of what I mean, um, uh, remember they've been pushing this narrative that uh, the Trump campaign was uh, having regular contacts with the Russian government, Russian intelligence operatives, and therefore colluding to try to interfere with the election. Well, last week, Comey testified that those stories, which had surfaced first in the New York Times, were false. There was no evidence of any collusion between the Trump campaign and um uh, a Russian uh, Russian official. So that that threw a huge uh, monkey wrench into that story. I mean, really, to date, there is no evidence whatsoever to support that story, which has now uh, been pushed for what more than six, seven months. Yeah, and will continue to be uh, to be pushed. He was pretty passionate defending himself and his work as Attorney General, his support for the Trump campaign when he was a sitting. 
uh, senator, and he denied any wrongdoing. Uh, in his opening statement, um, he addressed his interrogation from Senator Al Franken from some time bef- uh, before. This was during his confirmation hearing where he was he alleged allegedly had given mis, um, misleading information about his connection uh, and meetings with Russians. Yeah, he did. And he said that um, uh, the, the claim that he had somehow falsely testified uh, was a scurrilous and false allegation. I'm not sure he could be stronger than that. And and then, you know, he looked around at the people on that committee, um, people that, uh, some of whom he's known for the 20, 20 years as it was he was on there, and, and he said something that I thought was um, really the most forceful thing he said in, in, in the entire hearing. And he, he said, and this, this is a quote, the suggestion that I participated in any collusion or that I was aware of any collusion with the Russian government to hurt this country, which I have served with honor for over 35 years, or to undermine the integrity of our democratic process is an appalling and detestable lie. I, I, you, you can't get stronger language than that in a Senate hearing. Uh, Sessions couldn't address the uh, the Russian investigation, but he did address uh, Comey's claim in his testimony some days earlier um, that he hadn't received any information from the Justice Department on the details of uh, Jeff Sessions' uh, recusal from that that case. That was determined to have been false. Yeah, um, look. <laughs> There really wasn't any point to this hearing of having uh, the Attorney General there because almost as soon as he was sworn in as the Attorney General, he recused himself officially from having anything to do with the Russia investigation. And Comey really was kind of shown up with a lack of credibility over that, that claim that he made last week because, in fact, the Attorney General's office produced an email, an internal DOJ email, that was sent to Comey himself specifically from the office of the Attorney General, notifying him that uh, the Attorney General, after consultation with ethics officials inside justice, was recusing himself from uh, the Russia investigation. And the email instructed Comey very specifically again not to send uh, the Attorney General any information or to brief him at all about the investigation. So again, uh, Comey came out looking very bad. Well, the, the Attorney General um, also pushed back against the idea that he recused himself because of any unlawful or unethical activities. In fact, Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon was particularly insulting uh, to the Attorney General on that point, uh, suggesting that there was something problematic about his recusal. Yeah, and he asked, yeah, he, he asked uh, Sessions, well, what were those problems? Why, why did you recuse himself? And Sessions said, well, why don't you tell me, Senator, there were no problems. He, uh, he recused himself just out of uh, trying to be extra careful, despite the fact that he had never had any contact with Russian officials to discuss the election. You know, you know the other thing that, that came up, uh, Georgine, was the fact that he had had uh, two meetings with the Russian ambassador. Well, those meetings were so innocuous um, that... Uh, at one point, uh, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas made fun of the other senators by talking about the fact that one of those one of those meetings was when uh, uh, the Attorney General was giving a speech in a room with more than a hundred people, and it just happened that one of the audience members was the Russian ambassador. So Tom Cotton started asking uh, the Attorney General, 
well, whether he had read spy novels, you know, James Bond and others, and uh, was he familiar with how spies secretly pass information to each other in, in hotel lobbies and things like that. I mean, he, he was clearly suggesting how absurd the idea was there was some kind of nefarious activity going on there. One of the things that frustrated committee members was his unwillingness to make reference to or provide any detail about conversations he may or may not have had with the president. He didn't uh, cite executive privilege for himself, but that the president had the privilege of his conversations not being discussed. Uh, and so it was the president's privilege. First of all, was that a valid uh, point? And uh, talk a bit about that frustration. Sure. I, I, it absolutely is a valid point. Look, anybody who's ever uh, had to hire a lawyer knows that the the conversations you have with your lawyer are confidential. And yes, that confidentiality can be waived, but it can't be waived by the lawyer. Only the client can do that. And executive privilege works exactly the same way. Look, executive privilege has been recognized since George Washington was president because everyone knows from a practical standpoint, um, a president can't operate, uh, can't be the chief executive if he can't speak with and consult with and discuss issues confidentially with the people who work for him. So I, the big deal these senators made about that um, I think was just wrong. I, I, no one questioned when President Obama claimed executive privilege uh, over discussions he had with his aides, including, by the way, if you recall, he claimed executive privilege over the uh, Operation Fast and Furious investigation. Yeah, which was a very serious uh, breach. Senator Marco Rubio um, asked whether the president had a recording system in the White House. Uh, he had made some uh, the president had made some offhand comments about you better hope there's not a tape speaking to Comey. Um, your thoughts on that question and what, if any, role the attorney general might have in affirming uh, whether or not there are tapes or preserving tapes. Uh, it was sort of an odd thing to bring up, I thought, in, in this context. Well, I agree with you. And the attorney general basically said that he didn't know whether there were or there weren't. Um, I, I actually think it's irrelevant for this reason. Even if we take as completely true what Comey said occurred in his discussions uh, with President Trump. What Comey said happened isn't a violation of the law. It does not meet the elements of uh, the federal law on obstruction of justice. So whether or not there's a tape doesn't really matter because there's been no evidence produced, even with Comey's assertions, again, if we believe them, there's nothing in that that shows that the president broke the law. Now, this is a little bit off subject, but we learned earlier today that special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election and the possible collusion of Trump campaign uh, associates has now expanded. It's including an examination of whether President Trump attempted to obstruct justice. Your thoughts on that expansion? Well, as, as I just said, uh, I don't think that's going to go anywhere in the same way I don't think the Russia investigation is going going to go anywhere because there's no evidence that uh, any federal law was was violated in, in particular everyone should be reminded that um, it the FBI director is not the chief law enforcement officer uh, of the executive branch that is the president and the president has the ability to uh, end any investigation if he believes it's necessary. You, he can't be charged with obstruction uh, of justice. Uh, it's plain that he did not 
order the FBI director to um, end the investigation. And in fact, Comey himself mentioned a telephone conversation in which he says the president told him, well, gosh, if there are any of my uh, satellites were involved, we should find that out. That Those aren't the words of somebody trying to stop an investigation. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hans von Spakovsky, it's always a, a good thing when you join us to help clarify. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, he's uh, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. Garbage day at the Rices. We were talking about um, the uh, Jeff Sessions testimony uh, yesterday. Of course, we didn't have the opportunity to talk about it then because we had our uh, radiothon. And by the way, I uh, wanted to say thank you to those of you who generously gave to the Union Gospel Mission to see to it that men and women living on the streets of Portland for the next three months are provided for. Uh, but uh, we talked with Hans von Spakovsky about uh, that hearing, as well as the investigation that is continuing. We also learned that the Republican-led Senate, this is exciting because we see something uh, in either the Senate or the House that act, uh, actually been done. But the Republican-led Senate voted decisively to punish Moscow for interfering in the 2016 election. And there's no dispute over that. The only question now is whether or not the uh, Trump campaign was directly involved. So far, every official that has been asked that question says there's no evidence. And then depending on where they stand, they'll say yet. So the investigation continues. But nonetheless, um the uh, Republican-led uh, Senate voted decisively to punish Moscow for interfering in the election by approving a wide-ranging sanctions package that targets key sectors of the Russian economy and individuals who carried out the cyber attacks. Apparently, we have enough information to know who those individuals are. Senators uh, yet today actually passed the bipartisan sanctions legislation 97 to 2, and it underscored the broad support among Republicans and Democrats for rebuking Russia after U.S. intelligence agencies determined Moscow. Moscow had deliberately interfered with the presidential campaign. Now, lawmakers who backed the measure also cited Russia's aggression in Syria and Ukraine as adding uh, some weight to their efforts. Well, despite the um, the Russians' uh, activity, there's been a f- no forceful response from President Trump. The president has instead sought to improve relations with Moscow, rejected the implication that Russia's uh, hacking of the Democratic emails tipped the election his way. Now, to put it in context, there's been an effort by virtually every administration, uh, most recently the Obama administration, that reset with Hillary Clinton, who was then Secretary of State. There was uh, Russian interference in our elections at that time. Um, There has been Russian interference in our elections for the last 20 years, we are told. But the narrative that the um, that the campaign of the opponents um, is fairly new to this uh, whole equation. Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin's attack on our democracy, this is a quote from Senator John McCain, brazen attack on our democracy, which is a constitutional republic, is a flagrant demonstration of his disdain and disrespect for our nation. Now, keep in mind that the United States deliberately um, interfered with the Israeli election, uh, what, two, three years ago. So it's not all that unprecedented. Now, it was by stealth, 
that was also true with the United States, although it was more broadly um, discovered along the way. But in the last eight months, what price has Russia paid for attacking American democracy? Uh, McCain went on to say, well, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson offered tepid support for the sanctions measure, telling the House Foreign Relations Committee he agreed with the sentiment among lawmakers that Russia must be held accountable for its meddling in the election. But there are other interests that are also being balanced. For example, our fight against um, uh, uh, terrorism uh, in Syria and elsewhere. Tillerson urged Congress to make the sanctions legislation um, that doesn't tie the president's hands and shut down promising avenues of communication between the two former Cold War foes. He asked lawmakers to ensure any legislation allows the president to have the flexibility to adjust sanctions to meet the needs of what is always an evolving diplomatic situation, end quote. Well, if the Trump administration decides to oppose the new sanctions, they could be in a bind. The sanctions measure has been attached to a bill imposing penalties on Iran that the Senate is currently debating and which also has some pretty strong bipartisan support, which is something we don't see much in Washington these days. So the White House uh, would have to reject stricter punishments against Iran, which it favors in order to derail the parts of the legislation it may object to. Once the Iran bill is passed, the legislation moves to the House for action, and that may be a very different story. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve today raised the short-term federal funds rate and maintained its forecast for at least one more rate rise in 2017, with plans to begin shrinking its balance sheet later this year. At the conclusion of its two-day uh, policy meeting, the Federal Open Market Committee moved its benchmark interest rate higher to 0.25 percent uh, percentage point to between 1% and 1.25%, as had been uh, widely expected on Wall Street. So no big surprise there. But at the same time, members of the committee lowered its unemployment rate forecast to 4.3% this year, while also expecting inflation to remain stubbornly low through the rest of the year, but rising closer to 2% target in the longer term. So Federal Reserve raising rates from uh, 0.25 percentage points to between 1 and 1.25 percentage point, as had been expected. Mr. Warmbier, the 22-year-old who uh, was being detained in North Korea and has been in a coma since March of 2016, according to his parents, is now back in the United States. The University of Virginia student was detained in January of 2016 at the airport in Pyongyang on his way home. Pyongyang, uh, uh, North Korea, well, the American college student, um, Otto Warmbier was uh, has landed back in the United States after more than 17 months in detention in North Korea. He's been in a coma for over a year, according to his parents, and will be rushed, or I should say was rushed earlier today to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, uh, according to a hospital spokesperson. His return to the United States comes as questions are swirling about his health and what happened to him while he was detained by the North Korean government. Well, the 22-year-old contracted botulism last year and is in bad shape. That's what a source close to the family told CNN. North Korea told a U.S. official that warm beer contracted botulism and slipped into a coma after taking a sleeping pill. That's a quote from a senior State Department official. Otto has left North Korea. He is in... Um he is on medevac flight on his way home. Sadly, he is in a coma. We have been told he has been in that condition since March of 2016. So about a year, a little over that. We learned uh, this only one week ago. That's what the Warm Beer family said in their statement. Well, how the U.S. secured his uh, release from North Korea, particularly given the fact that there are at least four other Americans being detained there. They said, we want the world to know how we and our son have been brutalized and terrorized by the pariah regime of North Korea. We are so grateful that he will 
will finally be with people who love him. Well, he was detained in January of 2016, as I mentioned, at the airport on his way home. His parents say the University of Virginia student had been on a tour uh, of the reclusive country. I'd probably think twice about going there myself after what we've seen. North Korean authorities said that they had security footage of him trying to steal a banner containing a political slogan that was hanging from the walls of his Pyongyang hotel. Well, that was used as evidence in his hour-long trial during which North Korea accused him of committing hostile acts against the regime at the urging of a a purported member of a church in his home state of Ohio, a secretive university organization, and the CIA. Warm Beer was uh, found guilty. He was sentenced in March of last year to 15 years hard labor. It was the last time he was seen publicly. Well, Warm Beer was one of four Americans detained in North Korea. Since last March, the U.S. has been pressing North Korea to let Swedish officials see the four Americans. The senior State Department officials uh, speaking to CNN reported when the Swedes finally got the OK to visit, the North Koreans immediately asked for a meeting with Joe Yun, the U.S. envoy in New York, when he was uh, told about Otto Warmbier's uh, condition. What does it take to get an American released from North Korea? Well, in, in that meeting about a week ago, uh, Yun was told that Warm Beer had uh, contracted botulism a year ago, went into a coma, as we mentioned, after taking a sleeping pill. And U.S. officials then urged those with the ability to persuade Pyongyang to ratchet up the pressure to get him released. Um, a second uh, senior State Department official said the U.S. has not yet accepted the North Korean version of events in terms of the timing and the cause of how he fell into a coma, as they put it. All we know so far is what they have told us. This is the North Korean version of events. We won't know anything for sure until doctors are able to fully evaluate his condition, which is, of course, what they are doing now. Well, there are three other Americans that remain in North Korean custody. Two of the three other Americans being held there, Kim Sang-duk and Kim Hak-song, are academics who worked at Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. The third is a businessman, Kim Dong-chul. Kim Dong-chul is a... uh, uh, the president of a company involved in international trade and hotel services. He was arrested in 2015 and serving 10 years on espionage charges. Kim Sang-duk, also known as Tony Kim, a university professor, was detained uh, in Pyongyang this year, accused of attempting to overthrow the government. And Kim Hak-song, a native Korean born in China and a professor uh, working at the same university of, as Tony Kim, was detained uh, earlier this year um, in May on suspicion of hostile acts against uh, the regime. Um, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the United States is discussing their respective cases with the North Korean regime. The United States doesn't have diplomatic mission in North Korea, so they have to use surrogates uh, to try to communicate and um, secure the release of U.S. citizens. 45 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we're going to talk about the uh, trial of uh, uh, the murderer of Nicole Lobby, the daughter of Pastor Rich and Jordy Jones. He was found guilty by a jury. We'll tell you what's next uh, when uh, we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, this is your final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I know that many of you have been praying for and following the story of Pastor Rich uh, Jones and his wife, Jordy. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel uh, in Hillsborough. Uh, The murder of their daughter um, in 2014 was a case that many of us have been following for some time. And as you know, the trial resumed this week. Well, the man accused of murdering her in uh, Cedar Hills at an apartment complex back in 2014 was convicted yesterday. Jamie Tinoco was found guilty of aggravated murder. 
uh, an unlawful use of a weapon for killing Nicole Lobby in August of 2014. It's difficult to imagine it was that long ago. It seems much more recent to me, but it was 2014 in August. He was 17 years old at the time of the crime, and that will um, influence how he will be sentenced. And in fact, the sentencing phase is underway now. Well, last week, jury members in Washington County sat through hours of closed, uh, uh, closing arguments. Rather, Tinoco walked into the courtroom, then for the majority of the closing arguments, sat slumped in his chair. Well, in addition to murder charges, prosecutors said that Tinoco was trying to uh, to rape her. In closing arguments, the prosecutor argued that she made a voluntary, or rather that he made a voluntary confession, confessed to every element of the crime and knew specific facts no one else could know. The prosecutor said he recounted the location, her clothing, uh, her scream, all of it. Well, the defense questioned investigators' uh, interrogation tactics and argued that Tinoco was mentally ill when he confessed. The attorney alleged police uh, fed Tinoco details of the facts. Well, among many things, the prosecutors called um, Lobby's murder, a thrill kill, and uh, uh, described it in another way I won't uh, repeat, among uh, other things. The defense attorney asked jurors to give Tinoco the benefit of the doubt, which he certainly did not give to her. He's convicted of raping a woman at Austin Stadium in 2014. Detectives said it happened a month after they believe he killed Nicole here in the metro area. Uh, as I mentioned, he has been found guilty by a jury, and that is followed by the sentencing phase. He is not eligible for the death penalty. For one thing, at the time of the murder, he was 17 years old. But I think there was also some sort of a plea agreement, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, removed that from uh, the table. And I spoke with um, uh, my producer, James Blend, who attends the church uh, where Nicole and her family attended and where her parents uh, are pastors. And I wanted to share with you what... Um, uh, Let's see. I think this is the uh, someone on staff there, um, the campus pastor at uh, the Hillsborough Calvary Chapel, writing to the congregation. And I wanted to share with you because for many of you, Rich Jones is a friend. Um, he's a, a, a wonderful pastor and Bible teacher. He's also been a guest host on this program many times. We followed this story from its beginning and wanted to uh, in, encourage you to continue to pray for them. Uh, to remember them during this very difficult time, but a time in which the person responsible for the murder of their daughter is going to be held accountable. Uh, he, uh, uh, Matthew Dodd wrote to the congregation that we know many of you have been praying for our pastor and his family this last week as the trial of their daughter's murderer uh, was underway. We wanted to um, update the congregation and others uh, who uh, have not yet seen uh, the the story on the news. The jury deliberated all morning and this afternoon came back with the verdict of guilty in the charge of aggravated murder. Pastor Rich and his family are greatly relieved, very thankful that justice was served in this decision. Nothing will bring her back, but this was an important step in the process of healing and bringing closure to the family, which is an awkward way of, of putting it because your life, your family is never quite the same. New normal uh, takes up the space where uh, normal once was. The next step is that the jury must reconvene to decide the sentence. This is essentially a new phase in the trial, which began today. Uh, they must decide between life without the possibility of parole or life with the possibility of parole after 30 years. Pastor Rich and his family are asking that this man would never have the opportunity to hurt anyone ever again. Please uh, pray for the jury that God would give them wisdom. We know Pastor Rich, his wife, Jordy, and their family are very thankful for your prayers and the outpouring of love they have received from you as a church. And that really goes beyond the borders of 
uh, that particular congregation, the Hillsborough campus of Calvary Chapel and the Beaverton campus of Calvary Chapel. Many of us uh, are friends and um, certainly family members of uh, Pastor Rich and Jordy Jones and have walked with him sometimes from a great distance through prayer. Uh, but certainly have followed this case. and It was an answer to prayer that the individual who was responsible for her senseless and violent murder has been found, uh, now found guilty. And uh, as we wait for the sentencing, uh, which may come very soon or may take some time, uh, we pray that ultimately the right decision would be made uh, in this case. So I wanted to bring you up to date uh, on that situation. Also, we learned that the young man who was responsible some weeks ago for dousing a um, a patron at Denny's with gasoline and then alighting him on fire before running away, who was later found, identified, and then apprehended, has been sent to a mental hospital, apparently uh, is not fit to stand trial. Um, but that has been resolved um, as well, at least for the time being. I know in some cases uh, they are sent to a mental institution for a period of time, and if it's determined at some point they are fit to stand trial, then that follows. Uh, what we do know is that that um, individual has now been sent to a, a, a mental hospital where appropriate care will be given. Well, taking a quick look at what's coming up uh, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Beth Guckenberger. I hope I have that right. We'll make sure of it by tomorrow. Uh, the book is titled Start with Amen. It's a book that really encourages readers to take an eternal perspective. And when you see the end while standing somewhere at the beginning or maybe even in the middle, uh, it gives you a sense of perspective that is uh, not only biblical, but very useful in moving forward. Start with Amen, um, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. It's difficult to imagine when life Uh, is uh, being lived, that it's going to eventually draw to a close, not just for you as an individual, but life and time and space as we know it will ultimately draw to a close. And what Beth uh, Guckenberger encourages uh, readers to do is to take that into account when making decisions that not only impact our our lives as individuals, but uh, the body of Christ and uh, others in our community as well. So we'll talk with uh, Beth on Thursday. And then on Friday, I've been invited to MC a national conference in San Diego. I'll talk more in detail about that tomorrow. Um, so I'm going to be away from the office. I'll be out of the area uh, Friday and Saturday, returning home on Sunday. I'm going to uh, ask you to pray for that trip in particular. I'll give, as I mentioned, some of the details tomorrow. Um, but uh, we'll be back on Monday and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to tell you more about that event once it has drawn to a close. So on Friday, uh, I, be- I believe if James uh, has informed me, I think we're going to run the best of the Georgine Rice show uh, on uh, on Friday. So uh, you can look forward to rehearing some recent interviews. They'll be played at different times than they were originally. So if you tend to join the program in the five o'clock hour, the, the, uh, will not be interviews that you would have heard during that time period. And the same is true if you uh, listen in the first hour, but uh, don't in the second. So anyway, that's coming up on Friday. So that is our lineup. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing uh, today's program and engineering a portion of it. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Again, want to encourage you to pray for our uh, family at uh, Calvary Chapel in Hillsborough and Beaverton. Uh, where uh, Pastor Rich and Jordy Jones are uh, overseeing the the final stages of the conviction and now sentencing of the man who is responsible for depriving them of their daughter and uh, their grandchildren of their mother. 
Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.